morning, happy Sabbath. Welcome to this day of rest and restoration. And we are so excited that you have decided from your home to spend your day reading through God's scripture with us. Now, as we always do, we have a conversation that is chock full of interesting tidbits. But before we discover what God wants to say to you today, can I invite you to pray with me? God, we want to thank you so much for the blessing of the Sabbath that brings healing. And as we talk about these two concepts here in the midst of a medical campus to an audience that lives under the premise of a holistic approach to the body, the mind, the soul, and the spirit, we would pray that you would inhabit every single aspect of our conversation so that you would bring us not only the promise of rest, but the reality of healing. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. It was the first time, and I felt so grown up. You know the feeling, where you can stand and you feel like you're eight feet tall. You walk, everything is crisp and clean. And then you see them. You see those tickets in your hand as you're crisping that passport tightly. Must have been 10 or 11 years old at the time, and this was the first instant where my parents were sending me from Texas to visit our family here in California. Now, as I walked through that maze that was the airport in San Antonio, I decided to stop by and get a bite to eat. Now, I had my brother next to me. And so I looked at him and I told him, don't move, stay with me. He acquiesced and then we walked, we ate. And when we got finally to the gate, I felt a sheer panic. This feeling that something was missing, as I fumbled in my bag, I realized I had left the tickets and the passport somewhere. Now, my mother had told me, I'm going to send you and your brother alone to grandma's house, but you need to be responsible for me. And at that moment, I realized, I realized I had failed. I was consumed by a wave of anxiety and fear. As I went up and tears in my eyes, I told the gate attendant, I don't have my ticket. My passport is lost. She looked back at me, and apparently it wasn't the first time that a distraught child had walked over to her because she looked at me and she said, sweetie, it happens all the time. She then called on the loudspeaker, and within a few minutes, my tickets and the passports were safely in my brother's hands. That moment and the trip that ensued reminds me of how easy your life can turn from having everything in, in and under control, for, from feeling that you actually are grown up, from feeling that you as an adult have the full reins of what happens in your life and how in an instant that can shift. How in an instant our lives can move from control into chaos, from order into disorder, from joy into pain, 
from security into fear and guilt. Maybe that's why Jesus spent so much time trying to reassure his disciples. You know, throughout the gospel, Jesus says time and time again, I will be with you till the end of time. He says, don't worry about tomorrow, what you shall eat or where you should sleep. He talks about the presence of the Spirit. He prays that we may allow him to abide in us. This idea that Jesus represents the place where all anxiety and fear goes to die. Because really, that is the ultimate plague of our time. I mean, sure, the world has ground to a standstill with this pandemic, but if you look at the latest World Health Organization numbers, the number one disease that causes job loss and economic stagnation is not COVID-19. It's not even the common cold or a flu, upset stomach or headaches. Rather, it's depression. It's this inability to allow ourselves to live in the moment, this almost biochemical push to worry and to catastrophize that is as natural to us as breathing. Now, I'm not here to tell you that prayer and scripture is the only answer to depression. That would be, well, that would be a bit irresponsible in my part, particularly as we sit here in the middle of a medical campus with great clinicians. Sometimes we need to admit that these drives to anxiety and to fear and to sadness are created by chemical imbalances that must be addressed. But what I am here to tell you is that a lot can change simply by moving and shifting your perspective. Recognizing that the God that calls you to be calm, the God that says, no matter how many things you lose or how quickly your life shifts and sways from security to anxiety, I will be there to reorient you. And that's what Jesus is doing, isn't it? Throughout his earthly ministry, he is busy healing not only the body, but the mind, the soul, the spirit. It's almost as if the whole idea of rest and relaxation, that moment and that time and space that drives away all fear, has been incarnate in the body of Jesus. Now, I want to talk to you just briefly about two stories in Scripture that I think illustrate the point, the point that rest and healing is found in a person the person of Jesus. The first story is found in Mark chapter 2. Now, we've talked about this story quite a bit. It's a story that has fodder for the preacher because it's rich with imagery. So much can be said about Jesus and the community that is crushing, almost oppressing him at the door as they are probably in Peter and Andrew's house. Some can, say, some can be said about the message that he is preaching that is driving people to try and find and connect with them. Still much can be said about the people that are actually attending that worship service, how the outskirts of the home and the yard are populated by people who are desperately crushing, pushing, intending to come in, and how the inner circle, the closest circle to Jesus is populated by people who still haven't understood the gospel. People who are quiet, but have their reservations and their resistance to Jesus. How much can be said about the four friends, the four friends that sacrificially take their buddy 
to Jesus. And then when they find nowhere to come in through, they dig and claw and open up a hole in the wall. Or what about the man that lies down, looks in the eyes of the master and longingly wishes to be healed only to be granted forgiveness of sins? What about those scribes in the inner room who, upon hearing that Jesus is not only offering mediation for sins, but actually provides the reality of forgiveness of sins, begin to act to plan his downfall and his crucifixion? So much can be said about this story. But I want to focus on two primary points. I want you to read with me. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, verse 4. Speaking about the man's friends, Mark tells us that they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd. So they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat, the mat where the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Here's the reality of what Mark is trying to share. The language that he uses to describe the moment in which Jesus is preaching to this household full of people is very reminiscent of the Greek term that reflected these early house churches that appeared after the death and resurrection of Christ. In a sense, what Mark is trying to do is to say that when the church gathers together to share the gospel, it is Jesus himself who we are sharing. It is Christ's words and his teachings that we are passing on through people, and by doing so, we are passing on his very being. And that might be why the communion was so central to the services of the early church, because they realized that the invitation for the church wasn't only to pass on information, but it was to make people recognize the presence of the body and the blood of Jesus. It is that presence that allows people to find relief, relief to the pain and the worry, the reality of a job or a financial situation, or maybe even a clinical diagnosis that is troubling. So to be sure, Mark wants us to understand the story in the context of a church. And then the man is lowered down. And every single verb that Mark uses to describe this paraplegic man who is lowered down on a mat is a passive verb. And the man has come to Jesus passively, depending on others. It is the friends of the man and their faith who, who prompt Jesus into action. And he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Undoubtedly, the man has decided to come to Jesus to find healing. And instead, instead he finds forgiveness of sins. Now, all commentators will tell you, trying to apply our modern medical interpretations to the text, that what this is, man is suffering from is some psychosomatic disease. But you need to understand that the event of forgiveness and the event of healing are separate. And they're separate because Jesus wants to make a point. And the point he is trying to make is this. The only way to pass and to move on from passive participation in life to become active participants of life 
is through the master. It is the master that changes our status. It is the master that allows us the capacity to live anew. When we say that rest is found in a person and that true healing can only be found in Christ, we not only uh, talk about the physical maladies that would afflict us, what we actually are talking about also are the ideologies, the ways of understanding and living out life. In the, in, in the years, in the years of those scribes, those scribes who have seen Jesus and have followed him hesitantly, to be sure, until this point, the wheels have begun to turn. See, until this point in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has done many things. He's cast out demons. He has healed lepers. He has moved and shown that God is present. But it is with this healing of the paraplegic man that something changes. Now, in the Old Testament, lepers were healed. In the Old Testament, demons were cast out. But it is only Jesus who can provide forgiveness of sins. It is at that moment that the scribes have realized that Jesus is equating himself with God. And the wheels begin to turn. No longer are they silent and resistant, but now they vocalize their problem. And Jesus, knowing what they are thinking, says in verse 8, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And just like that, the story for the man has changed. Just like that, the man now is described using active verbs. And in that moment, he has passed on from passive participation and dependence on other people's faith to the active task of carrying his own mat. Rest can be found, but rest is only found in mission. And mission can only be lived out when we actually apply ourselves to the task of carrying our mats, and more importantly, carrying other people's mats to the feet of Jesus. The sad thing about the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the other Gospels and the scribes in Mark's account is that they are always focused on the mats never focused on the men that are on top of the mats. And so Jesus is trying to tell us that physical and emotional healing begins when we recognize other people's needs. And just a few years ago, a statement was put out by the American Society of Psychologists and Therapists, and it noted that when followed with tact, with a uh, Talk therapy, antidepressants are helpful to alleviate mental anguish about two thirds of in about two thirds of cases. They realized that that number skyrocketed incredibly when talk therapy anti, and antidepressants were combined with actively with active involvement in someone else's life. In other words, they realized that patients that tried to manage their emotional anxiety and angst by pouring into other people's lives fared much better than those who didn't. Jesus is trying to point out that reality to us. 
he is saying. Physical maladies are a problem. But physical maladies become much easier to deal with when we have emotional, spiritual, and mental security. And Christ can always provide that. Now, does that mean that your life will be forever easy? Does that mean that you won't lose the tickets? Does that mean that you won't stand at some point in front of somebody completely embarrassed, crying out, I've ruined everything? Well, no. And like it happened to me at the airport, these, it seems like these times occur in the most inopportune moments. Yeah, think about the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19. He isn't paralyzed. He's not coming to Jesus desperate, trying to claw his way into the room. Instead, he is riding a high. After all, he has just defeated the prophets of Baal in Mount Carmel. It is at that moment that Elijah faces his reckoning. First Kings chapter 19 says, Now Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a message to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so more severely, if by this time tomorrow I will do not make your life like one of them. And so here's what's happening. There's this religious revival in the people, and the prophet has actually settled the score. It's almost as if Israel is ready to turn its collective gaze back to God. And in this moment of triumph, after three and a half years of drought are lifted, Elijah, Elijah experiences burnout. When we're talking about the reality that your life can quickly switch from control to chaos, Elijah presents a, per a perfect case in point. Maybe it's just a phone call. Maybe it's a visit to a physician. Maybe it's a letter or a conversation that has shifted your life from control to chaos. Maybe you're like Elijah, experiencing burnout. Terrible, terrible burnout. Listen to the words. Listen to the words that Elijah uttered. First Kings verse, chapter 19, verse 10. I have been very zealous for the Lord all God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death to the sword. Am I the only one left? And now they are trying to kill me too. He is devastated, desperate, depressed. And God asks him, God asks him to leave his hiding place. He's in the cleft of a rock and he asks Elijah, come out of the cave. And what happens is you have a series of theophanies. First, a great and powerful wind, then an earthquake and then a fire. The question that is asked in 1 Kings 19 isn't about the presence or the absence of God. If you read the text carefully, you will realize that God came with the earthquake and with the fire and with the wind, though he was not in the wind. What is actually so moving is that God is trying all these different things to try to get Elijah to snap out of it, to come back to life, to leave his hiding place behind to try and experience the rest that comes with turning our lives over to God. And God will go to any lengths. When Elijah heard it, 
when Elijah heard that after the fire came a gentle whisper, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mount of the cave. What I find so moving about this is there's this whisper, there's this breeze that comes after the theophanies. Again, the God that will go to any lengths to restore you and provide you rest speaks in a whisper. Now, it doesn't mean that Elijah's better. It doesn't mean that all of the sudden his depression has lifted and the agony has disappeared. Chaos has not given way to order just yet, but at least we're on a journey. And so today, as we speak to you, as we speak to you anxious and lonely and maybe desperate, as we speak to you in your homes, maybe you're sick, maybe you're wondering when life will finally come back to normal, as we speak to you, whether you're desperately crawling, opening up a hole to stand in the presence of the master, or whether you're disappointed and discouraged, remember one thing. God will do anything to to return you to peace and rest. Whether it's your sins that need forgiveness, whether it's a repurposing for your mission and your work, whether it's simply an ear to vent with, or whether it's a majestic theophany that will lift you up your mat. God is doing something in your life. So won't you respond by carrying up your own mat, by leaving the cleft of the rock, and by becoming invested in someone else's life? Maybe, just maybe, you'll hear the words, the words of the master who looks down upon you as you're weeping and wailing, And he'll say, don't worry, this happens all the time. Let me fix it. So I've got one of my best friends, uh, our own Stu Hardy, who's our media pastor here at the church. And Stu, we're going to have a conversation about this idea of rest and this idea of health, which in Loma Linda is is a conversation I feel that is ongoing and that is daily. I find it interesting this this lesson the two stories they chose to to combine, um, and I, I use that interesting in a in a good way. You know, interesting is one of those words where it's like, <laughs> yeah, that was interesting. You know, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So, um, I, I think in a good way. First of all, starting with the the paralytic, um, there's a lot of interesting dynamics mm-hmm. now from the text. The fact that Jesus says your sins are forgiven indicates some awareness of what was going on in the paralytic's life. And I think also we we have um, reasonable certainty that there was fundamentally a belief mm-hmm. that disease was a result of something mm-hmm. someone did. Now, I believe in this case, uh, um, and it's not that important in this context, but I think in Desire of Ages, Ellen White does kind of peel back a little bit. There may have been something in this individual's right. life. But setting that aside, just staying with the text, um, there's certainly an indication that that was most important. That's where Jesus started mm-hmm. with it. And then he heals him. One of the things that really fascinates me, if you bring that into our culture, um, let's talk about the friends for a moment. Mm. So 
whether it's true or not, you know, I envision that there's like four people on the four corners pulling this guy, whether it's three, two, whatever. But let's assume it's the four. So here's this guy that's been a paralytic for who knows how long and confirmed paralytic. And then somehow, I don't know whether he convinces them or the, it's one of those situations where the friends say, come on, you should go. You know, no, I'm not going to go. I'm not, uh, we're going to take you kind of thing. Mm. I find it really fascinating what they had to go through for him to receive the blessing mm. he did. Talk a little bit about what that might teach us, this friend relationship with the paralytic. Mm. And it wasn't just like, oh, yeah, we'll pick you up and drop you off. Mm -hmm. There was a lot involved in making this yeah. work. Yeah, Stu. So this is, I think, something that you've picked up on. Um, the man, as you mentioned, goes to find healing. But he, what he really craves is forgiveness. Because I think... I think we all crave that to a certain degree. I think I think our physical maladies, painful as they may be, are no match for the mental and emotional anguish um, that that one has to go through living and believing that we are insignificant or even worse, that there's something fundamentally wrong with us. And as you've mentioned, that was the prevailing thought process of people back there. There's something fundamentally wrong in your life. So if you just would confess that and let people know, then, you know, you'd be healed. Um, and so for me, just having to live under that crushing amount of shame has to be impossible to bear. And so I think Jesus begins by restoring his self-worth, um, even as you know, nothing really, nothing else really happens. It's funny. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And then everybody's like, but, but we came here to, to have him walk again. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Stay on the map for a little bit. Let me deal with this other conversation. Exactly. Um, and then the friends, which I think are the most fascinating part about this passage. Um, because like I said, if you read uh, Mark chapter 2 in the first at least four verses as we're being introduced to the situation, every single verb that is used connected to the paralytic is passive. Everything, all the active verbs have to do with the friends. So it's actually the friends who are, who are driving this man to go see Jesus, not just in a physical sense, but as you, I think, mentioned. And I think there's just because of the language, it, it would be fair to assume that the man's like, no, you know, nothing can help me. I've been to every single priest, I deserve prophet. What I, have. I deserve what I have. I'm just gonna get. There's no hope for yeah, me. I'm done. And so it's the it's the men that say, "Well, there's something different about this Jesus. So let's go have you meet him." And so I find that when we're talking about health, whether that be physical health, or mental health, or emotional health. Um, this this health that we all crave that provides rest, as is being talked about this week, we all at some point are going to need someone else to believe for us. When I am devastated emotionally or mentally because something went wrong and I have lost hope, I need somebody to come behind me and say, it's going to be okay. When I've received a terrible prognosis and I've lost the will to fight, 
I need somebody that that is going to come beside me and say, you can beat this. So I think what's important for us is twofold. I think it's important to realize that we all go through these moments when we need somebody to believe for us. And that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with us. And then I think that as friends, it's important to be that for somebody when they need it, whether it's physically, emotionally, or spiritually, we all are going to have opportunities in our lifetime to believe for someone. And that's the invitation um, that Jesus is making in Mark chapter 2. Be relentless about that. Dig a hole, open up a way, be creative, be inventive, be unorthodox on how you do it. But it's important to be relentless. Yeah, I I also think one of the things that it's a bit of a soapbox for me in that the situation for this paralytic, we have reason to believe that basically the fundamental religious belief mm -hmm. taught is if you have a disease like this, there was something you did mm -hmm. wrong and God has punished you. And so that right there takes the one aspect of our life, the one message it seems that God has invested enormous amount in trying to communicate that undermines mm -hmm. that. In other words, religion becomes at times or faith becomes the greatest source of discouragement mm -hmm. and loss of hope, which is completely contrary to what God is trying mm -hmm. to do. And I think here's a classic story. So here this paralytic is not only living under the burden of being a paralytic and whatever that might mean, and we don't know whether he was always a paralytic or not, but regardless, you know, none of us would wish that on anyone. And then on top of it, mm. to believe that, well, you did something wrong, mm -hmm. and so God, um, God needed to punish you yeah. for that. Well, here's a situation where it seems as though, especially this combination of stories, but with this story, what is God's response to that? The first thing he says, you're forgiven. Mm -hmm. So he's essentially saying, you know, that whole religious belief that, you know, you've done something wrong. Because you know what? We can look at other situations, you know, like this, the stoning, wanting to stone the adulterer. And it's like, you know, anyone, anyone with that sin, right. they can throw right. the stone. He's basically said the message like, you know what? There isn't anybody. Mm -hmm. I'm the only one that can forget sin. So there's no one to right. throw a stone. And guess what? I'm the one that has Amen. the right to throw the stone. Amen. And I'm not picking up a stone. Yeah. And so here you have this situation where Jesus himself, so God incarnate, is trying to communicate with us humans then and now. His response to this is, first of all, you're forgiven. Mm -hmm. Just let's start there, okay? And then I love the, the little illusion. And, and, and can you expound on this a little bit? It, it Mark kind of describes because of their faith, faith that evoked a, a response. Now it's not a response that oh, because they did that, then okay, I'm going to help. It's more. It seems more that there's a kind of an appreciative mm -hmm. response that oh, thank goodness amongst all these people, look at this faith. Right. How refreshing. Yeah. So that's a great, first off, I just want us to pause for a moment and digest that. Um, God says, I'm the only one who has the capacity to stone. 
and I choose not to because I want to kneel next to the sinner. I think, I think if, if all we remember is that, then we've got a pretty good sense of what the gospel is about. Um, in, in this particular story, uh, Jesus' recognition of the friend's faith is followed by a really subtle um, shift in language, a shift in language that Jesus almost always, almost never uses. And so if you look at most of the healing stories, uh, Jesus refers to the people that are being healed by their gender, woman or man. He doesn't do that in, in, this, in this story. He doesn't even use the term my son, which is, which is another term that, that uh, gospel writers like. He uses a much more obscure term, um, which has to do with like my little child uh, would, be, would be a, a pretty accurate tra translation. So it's almost as if the faith of the men caused Jesus to see this man in a way in which he hasn't been seen before. Um, and I, I think that is something that we can, can participate in. Um, a lot of commentators will talk about Mark 2 and about how the language that is used throughout this story is very reminiscent of a sacrificial uh, system um, or, or a communal system in the sense that Jesus is moving to an inner room, much like the priest would move to a different room, and then something is lowered on a platform. And the word that they use is very reminiscent to the word uh, that uh, Acts chapter 10 uses to talk about this thing that is descending uh, when Peter has a vision of inclusivity, or to in the sacrificial system, this thing that would, that would descend and, and then serve as an offering. And so it's almost as if God is saying, these men, the faith of these men have made me feel and live and breathe in, in, in inhabit a space where you are actually providing or presenting this man before me as an offering. And I am accepting him, not as a sinner, not as a paralytic, but as my son. And so I think we have this opportunity when we intercede for someone or when we become those who believe uh, for when somebody can't believe, we have this amazing opportunity to present them before God and God will always accept them and not just as a paralytic or as a sinner, but as his beloved children. And it's very powerful. And I, I, it also, while you were talking there, it made me think of you know, it's very important with the gospel message of, of grace and, you know, there's nothing that we can do to earn salvation. And one of the things that always troubles me is, is some of the dialogue about grace, in my opinion, leads to lack of accountability mm. and taking mm -hmm. responsibility. There is effort involved. It's just not to gain salvation. Right. And... Um, when you talk about great faith, you know, like the Israelites crossing the Red Sea, they did have to put their feet in the water, you know, whatever. Here's a situation where they had to pick this guy up. He had to agree to go with them. And then they had to, who knows, you know, a lot of these villages weren't that big, but still he had to carry him. Then right. he gets that. It's like, you know, you think it's, ah, it's too crowded. Like going to a restaurant, it's like, oh, I don't want to wait a half an hour, 40 minutes. It's like, 
And you go, no, no, no. So they go up there, and I can just imagine, you know, here's Jesus preaching, and all of a sudden there's like little crumbs of dirt, little yeah. crumbs of dirt. It's like, what's going on up there? And all of a sudden, you know, it, I would imagine if they can dig the ceiling out, there's some risk of it collapsing. And then they 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 lower them down. And so there was a lot of effort in there. And I, I think it's really interesting to look at the friend's role mm. in that. And um, I don't want to go too far in this because this is a whole other conversation. But, you know, there's some of that language where um, I know when I was younger, it was a little uncomfortable where there was kind of some things that, you know, these people could have been saved if you would have done this and that kind of thing. And and people get into this whole big guilt thing, you know, that, oh, I need to witness more. But I, I do think there's something interesting there that there is a privilege, an opportunity where they they engaged. And, and like we said earlier, we may not know for sure, but there seems to be some language that implies that this may be in a situation where they were encouraging a friend. And like you said, they were essentially his belief for him. And I, I've always believed God gives everyone ample opportunity to receive him and to understand him at whatever level they can, wherever they're at. But it seems like this is an example where because someone engaged, it gave this person an additional opportunity to engage. And then all of them were blessed. And then all the people in the room right. were blessed. Because you remember the rest of the text says they were like, Amazed. Amazed. We, haven't, we haven't seen anything like yeah. this, you know? Yeah. And I, I I believe that in many respects, God, I don't have a need necessarily to see these kind of miracles to believe in God's existence. But I do believe God wants us to experience in this life now a lot more tangible realities of mm. his presence. Mm. Um, how do you feel about that statement? I feel great about that statement because... In the story, you see that effort is what, I mean, Jesus is probably protag the protagonist of the story, but effort is the co-protagonist um, because the gospel is always about effort. It's not about merit. You don't earn anything, but there is a lot of effort involved. Just think about this. So Jesus tells the man, hey, okay, fine. Your sins are forgiven. By the way, I can also cause you to get up. And so get up and walk. And then the word that is used is, and he rose. And it's the same word that Mark and the rest of the gospel writers think about when they're writing about the resurrection, about the Jesus rising. And so think about this. In a, this is a microcosm of actually how the gospel occurs. You are, I, you are because of somebody, because God has decided for some strange reason to partner with us in bringing this message of hope and salvation and rest and restoration to people. We get to bring someone to Jesus. And then that person goes to Jesus not knowing what they want. I mean, usually the reason that we come to Jesus is, hey, I've got a crisis going. And so I need, I need to fix it. Or there's a national crisis going. So we, we, we turn to religion. Or I'm sick. Or um, I'm in a new relationship. Whatever it is, there's usually something external that brings us to God. But there's also this internal drive, right? That's something that we don't even know we need until we experience God. And that is, I think, 
to allay the biggest fear that we all have, and that is that we're irreparably, irrevocably broken. That's what keeps people up at night. And so you see, you meet God because somebody else decided to intervene and, and exude some effort. And then God says, hey, I know you're going through the thick of it right now, but I'm going to give you something that you need that you didn't even know you needed. And so there it is. Uh, and that what, what that is, is the gospel. The idea that through the death and the resurrection of one, we now can have forgiveness of sins. We can rise up and see life in a different way. And now, now we can carry these instruments that we use to confine us, that were a symbol of our defeat. We carry them with, we all carry our mats with us as a sign of what God has done and how God has transformed our lives. And so it's this microcosm of the gospel that is occurring, but time and time again, there is this invitation to participate in that. The friends need to get up. The man, they need to dig a hole. They need to lower the man down. The man needs to believe enough to get up and carry his mat. And so I think life would change. And when you're talking about the blessing that, that is the gospel and the rest and the restoration that comes with it, um, I think that life would change a lot if we actually began to live not like we're trying to earn salvation, but like we've already been gifted salvation. And now, now it's time to tell those things that used to hold us captive. You've lost control over me. And I'm going to carry you by my side to remind people, to remind those people that are desperate and uh, with a particular sin or a situation that they can't fix. I'm going to remind them that there's a way out of this. And the, the way from moving from being passive to becoming active in your life is Jesus. That's powerful. When you were talking, it made me think of this. It's that for some reason we cannot get out of our head it seems as though we act as though even when we talk about grace and gospel, we still underneath, there's this lurking thing that we believe God's priority is trying to convict us mm -hmm. of something rather than to restore mm -hmm. us. Now, we understand conviction. I'm not talking about that. We act more like God as a judge that's looking for any opportunity, like a DA's office that wants <laughs> to get a successful yeah. conviction yeah. and not restoration. Now, before we run out of time, I want to make sure we talk about Elijah, because that, that was an interesting combination in this lesson. We just got a few minutes left. This blows me away. This story has always blown me away. No, it's a great story. Because you imagine, so Elijah is on a mountain, and can you imagine you and I going, okay, we're going to go out of the top of our new building here, and I'm going to, I'm going to get a bunch of people together, all the atheists in the world, and say, okay, let's build this, and okay, you guys do your thing, I'm going to do my thing. So first of all, doing that. Then after all that happens, then, then Elijah says, oh, you know, now we're going to get rain. We've been having this all drought. Um, we're going to have rain. So he prays, nothing happens. Praise, nothing happens. Praise, nothing happens. Praise, nothing. You know, we can all relate to that, yeah. right? Seven times. And then there's this little cloud. And, and then he goes, we got to get out of town. Yeah. And so he runs all the way down there and gets down, runs forever. And then, you know, you and I have both been to uh, Israel and all that stuff, Mount Carmel. And then... He ends up running all the way down to Mount Horeb, which is actually a decent it's, drive in a car. Yeah. And so here's this guy that 
unlike us, or at least most of us, most of us can't say, yeah, you know, yesterday, what'd you do, honey? <laughs> well, you know, I got fired out from heaven, and I, we kind of wiped out a bunch of bad guys. And then, you know, I prayed, and it rained, and we could really want rain right now, right? Right. In California, and that's a pretty big day, you know? Well, then he's in this cave. He's completely depressed and discouraged. And I think for all of those that are struggling with depression out there, what is God doing with Elijah? Oh, see, that's why I love the story, Stu, because we we don't I think we don't talk enough about mental health sometimes in our in our churches. I think it's still a taboo conversation to have, but it's in the Bible. You or have, it's, it's, it's a, a lack of faith. Right, like you need to pray hard enough. Yeah. And it's like, hello. I mean, if Elijah and Jeremiah got depressed, and I mean, these are these are the prophets of the Old Testament. I don't have a I don't have a hope. I, there's no, I don't have a snowball's chance. Yeah, yeah, I can't claim that I prayed. You know, and something rained right, or fire came exactly. down. I can't do that. So I, this guy prayed, and rain came down, and yet he still fell prey to the depression. And here's the thing: a lot of people, a lot of people that we know and that we love, continue to struggle with depression, and they are people who are courageous who are spiritually and who are spiritually connected to God. And what I love about the story is look think about it. What is driving Elijah's depression? Well, I just won God and now I'm hiding here because Jezebel has said she's going to kill me. And if you're reading the story you're like wait, what? How do you not trust God enough, Elijah? Like he, God just did this. Do you think he's really going to let Jezebel kill you? Do you think he can't do anything to stop that? Not once, not once does God indict Elijah for feeling the way he feels. And so I think first and foremost, when we're talking about issues of mental health, we would do well to become a more gracious community in the sense that when somebody comes to us, God, we don't indict them. We say, hey, your fears and your catastrophizing might sound ludicrous to us, but we don't indict you for having these feelings. What we're going to do is we're going to try as a community to do what God does for Elijah. And what does God do for Elijah? God does whatever it takes to drag him out of that cave. Do you need a fire? I'll, I'll, I'll create a fire. Do you need an earthquake? I'll make the earth shake. Do you need a wind? Well, here comes the wind. Oh, nothing, none of those things work because those had been working in the past. Well, let me try something new. First time in all of scripture, he says, well, I'm going to speak to you in a small, still voice. I will do whatever it takes to know that you're not alone and to get you out of this cave. And I think if we approach mental health in that way, saying, hey, we're going to do whatever it takes. If you need talk therapy, we're going to do talk therapy. If you need medication, we're going to do medication. If you need somebody's shoulder to cry on, we're going to we're going to be that shoulder. If we did, if we had that approach, we will do anything it needs it takes to get you out of the cave and to make you feel like you're with us. Then I think we could start finally having in our congregations conversations on mental health that are healthier. Well, I, I think fundamentally, which is so important, is sin obviously is very important to God. It, 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 in Absolutely. his presence, it gets destroyed. Absolutely. That's the reality. So that's why we're separated because just mm -hmm. it's kind of the law of gravity. If I drop gra gravity, if I drop something, it's going to fall. God in presence of sin, sin gets destroyed. If you're attached to sin, that's where you go. 
you know, you're God kind of thing. But having said all that, and as important and central it is in terms of God's process to deal with sin, he's trying to get in our heads, yeah, you're a sinner, you're flawed, you have faults. Can we move on? Mm -hmm. We'll deal with that. So let's not live in this space where God's trying to find a point to convict you. So, oh, yep, you didn't make it. Or, oh, mm -hmm. you weren't fast enough or smart enough or whatever. Or you weren't humble enough. So whatever. He's just saying, listen, if you have mental health issues or Elijah, because this is if there was any situation, God could have said to Elijah, what were you thinking? Yeah. I just did this and this. Yeah, exactly. what, what's your problem? Exactly. That's not what God said. And. I would really encourage, as we're wrapping it out, and have you close it with prayer, there's a really great quote in the lesson study. I encourage people to check it out, and I think it's from Heavenly Places, where Ellen White is essentially talking about, you know, life experiences, some we receive with joy, some with loss, we're up and down, our emotions are up and down. And she's basically saying, but God doesn't change. God just wants us to trust in his love. And on it, what's so powerful, some people kind of say, well, that sounds like a Hallmark card, kind of like a sweet little saying. Love is rich. It's deep. It doesn't deny fault. It doesn't deny realities. But it's, it's a richness that faces those realities. And what God is saying, Elijah, and anyone reading this story, because I wanted people to hear this story, I did great things that you may never do in your entire life. Yeah. And this guy still got depressed and was afraid that one queen was going to kill him. Where I certainly had the right to throw the stone at the woman. I had the right to go to Elijah. I give up on you. What more can I do for you to get your head in the game and say, I've got this. But yet, it's that still small voice. And he's basically saying, in action, Elijah... I love you. Amen. So whatever your situation may be, whether you are physically ill or whether you are dealing with mental health issues, whether you feel lonely, whether you maybe are, are struggling with that heavy, heavy burden, which is depression, anxiety, angst, God isn't trying to fix you because you're a project. God is trying to love you because you're you. And so I know that it's, it's really easy to spew platitudes when we're talking about brokenness, but as Stu reminded us, God is simply saying, my love, my love is rich enough. And so if you only remember that thing, I think you'll be in a better space than both Elijah and the paralytic. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we want to thank you for loving us enough. I want to thank you because you don't view us as incomplete projects. You see us as children needing desperately rest. And so you try to provide that for us. You try to say, I'm going to speak to you in whatever way I can to calm your spirit. I'm going to give you things that you don't even know you needed. I am going to call you out of a passive existence to an active and rich life because that is who I am. 
May we continue to believe that today, tomorrow, and always. Amen. And may God, will may God richly, richly bless you.